Every year, Americans donate about $300 billion to charities, with about 30% of that taking place in December during the holiday season. But not all charities are good stewards of donated dollars, and many Americans opening their wallets likely have no idea. In 2010, San Francisco-based Hope Consulting found, among other things, that 65% of donors do no research at all before contributing money to a charity. Of those that do check things out, only a small percentage invest more than two hours. And the research is important because even the most trusted charities can have issues. Here's President Barack Obama in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy endorsing the efforts of the American Red Cross. Uh, now's the time to uh, show the kind of generosity that uh, you know, makes uh, America the greatest nation on earth. And a good place to express that generosity is by contributing to the Red Cross. And here's NPR's Laura Sullivan reporting some of the findings of a joint NPR ProPublica investigation into the charity's Superstorm Sandy response. Our reporting found incidents where the charity sent as many as 40% of its emergency vehicles to press conferences instead of into the field, where it failed to show up as promised to open shelters, allowed sex offenders to hang out in a shelter's play area. In a storm weeks earlier, it even sent empty trucks to drive around to make it appear supplies were being delivered. Coming up on this episode, IRE's Sean Shinneman talked with ProPublica's Justin Elliott, who worked on the Red Cross investigation. This week's theme is Navigating Nonprofits. I'm George Varney, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE, with you on your beat for over 30 years. On this episode, we'll look at two investigations into nonprofits. First is a look into the Red Cross investigation we just played a clip of. After that, Arizona Republic reporter Craig Harris will explain how he used documents and a good tip to dig deep into the nonprofits behind college football's Fiesta Bowl. I got a phone call, and the phone call went something like this. I used to work at the Fiesta Bowl. I was forced to make campaign contributions to local and uh, state candidates, and I got reimbursed by the bowl. Click. That was the phone call. All that and more coming up on the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE's Sean Shinneman talked to ProPublica reporter Justin Elliott about his recent work reporting on some questionable spending by the Red Cross. Here's Sean. Early this year, ProPublica received a somewhat vague tip hinting that the $310 million raised by the Red Cross after Superstorm Sandy hadn't exactly been spent efficiently. So reporters Justin Elliott and Jesse Isinger set out to answer a simple question. Where specifically had all that money gone? Here's Elliot, who I got on the phone last week. We, we really basically couldn't answer the question, so we wrote uh, an initial story um, in, uh, I think, March or April of this year, um, sort of just saying that, saying that uh, we looked at this, we talked to the Red Cross, they wouldn't really tell us where the money went, and the whole thing was a black box, so we thought that was worth pointing out. At the bottom of that initial story, they included a line. If you have information about the Red Cross, specifically their operations after Sandy, contact reporter Justin Elliott. They gave Elliott's email address. While sources gradually came forward, Elliott and Isinger teamed up with NPR's Laura Sullivan to launch a deeper investigation into exactly what happened to all that money. When their public records requests hit a snag, they wrote another story. This one was about how the Red Cross was arguing that information about Sandy spending should be redacted as, quote, trade secrets. Again, they added that line. If you know anything, email us. Because I think that we maybe, or at least speaking for myself in the past, have sort of assumed that people 
out there. Potential sources know that, that we want to hear from them, but I think sometimes it requires a little bit of nudging, even just something as simple as putting your email address in on a one-sentence sort of call-out at the bottom of a story. The resulting sources and information helped guide about five months of reporting, which culminated in an October 29th story titled The Red Cross's Secret Disaster. Here's Elliot describing the piece. The, our investigation, which I did with uh, Jesse Eisinger here at ProPublica and also uh, Laura Sullivan at NPR, um, we're drawing from uh, internal Red Cross documents and accounts of various Red Cross, Red Cross officials, found that the Red Cross failed uh, to execute its, its fundamental mission after Hurricanes Isaac and uh, Superstorm Sandy. Um, they're supposed to provide uh, relief and food and shelter, and in many cases they just didn't get to affected areas. In, other, in cases when they did, they uh, had serious problems, like they were delivering flashlights without batteries. And I think sort of most disturbingly we found that uh, the leadership of the Red Cross, uh, in several cases, actually diverted uh, disaster relief resources like trucks uh, to be used for public relations purposes. So in one incident, they sent out a whole fleet of trucks uh, that were empty um, to make it look like they were doing something when they weren't. And in other cases, they used trucks that could have been delivering food and supplies uh, to be uh, backdrops at press conferences. And this angered um, a lot of uh, Red Cross responders on the ground. In the week between when the story ran and my phone call with Elliot, people continued to come forward with information. The reporting, Elliot says, isn't over. But the story already has helped shed light on a charity that had avoided much intense public scrutiny. Elliot urged other journalists to poke around at similarly neglected organizations. You know, the Red Cross is um, obviously a very high-profile organization. It's it's huge. I mean, they have 25,000 employees around the country. They have $3 billion in annual revenue. Um, But, uh, you know, for the last few years, basically no one's been covering it. Um, So I think that um, they're just in general, you know, there's probably a lot of other institutions possibly, including nonprofits out there, that aren't getting the coverage that they deserve. If you want to learn more about how the story came together, visit the IRE website. I'll have a more detailed look behind the story in a blog post out next week. I vividly remember the 2007 Fiesta Bowl between Boise State and Oklahoma. It was described both before and after the game as a battle between David and Goliath. It was exciting and high scoring, and the game ends in overtime in the most spectacular way. And it's a fake play, and they're going to score! Ian Johnson! They rolled the ball to Ian Johnson, and he scored! They left it down on the field! Zabransky faked the pass! Johnson picked up the ball and ran it in for a touchdown! And the Broncos have won the Fiesta Bowl! Can you believe it? Boise State on a trick play! Boise State running back who scored on the winning play would propose to his head cheerleader girlfriend during the postgame interviews. The whole game was larger than life. 
According to the Arizona Republic, that year the Fiesta Bowl generated a, quote, nearly $50 million revenue bonanza. Craig Harris is an investigative reporter at the Republic, and in 2009 he was in between beats. His editor didn't know if he wanted Harris at the Metro desk or on the business beat, so Harris was given three weeks to work on whatever project he wanted. As it was college football bowl season, Harris started digging into the Fiesta Bowl, which is held in nearby Glendale, Arizona. The Fiesta Bowl is a, uh, an elite bowl. It was uh, one of the four BCS bowls. It's now one of the six bowls that's in the college football playoffs. It's uh, extremely lucrative, but the bowl is also run by four nonprofit organizations. And by being a nonprofit organization, like many of the major college bowls are, they pay no uh, income taxes at all. The game generates a ton of money, and none of that income was taxed. That wasn't exactly news, but it did interest Harris enough to dig a little deeper. He pulled the 990 tax return forms. All nonprofits have to release these forms annually. One of the ways Harris recommends getting them is a website called GuideStar, which provides these records and more if you make a free account. Citizen Audit and ProPublica are other good sources for finding 990s. Harris notes that revenues, expenditures, and especially net assets are important tools for gauging the financial health of any organization. Salaries are also listed, and Harris saw that the president and CEO of the bowl was making more than $600,000. And that's certainly not a crime, but by looking at other areas of the 990, Harris was able to catch the Fiesta Bowl in a decade-long lie. Uh, another thing to look for is independent contractors. The Fiesta Bowl was uh, spending very heavily on lobbyists, and this was their main lobbyist, Huss Partners. They listed as a consultant, but if, once you looked at the Secretary of State Forum in Arizona, you would see that this is actually a lobbying firm. And the Fiesta Bowl for over a decade was saying that they didn't engage in lobbying, even though they spent more than a million dollars on lobbyists. Harris found more interesting information in the expenses section. The phrase Fiesta Frolic in particular caught his eye. And so I did a little more investigation on this, and this is just a big party they threw for college football coaches who are making over a million dollars a year, their athletic directors. They came to Phoenix and stayed at the Biltmore. Uh, the Biltmore is a four or five star hotel. I've stayed there a couple times, once for my anniversary and once when I got a smoking summer deal when it was 110 degrees out and no one wants to go to the Biltmore. They were bringing them to the Biltmore and it was a very expensive time to go there. That information, in addition to the fine print that showed the bowl provided an interest-free $120,000 loan to the nonprofit CEO to play golf, was more than enough to write an interesting story on the bowl's behind-the-scenes inner workings. But then Harris got an anonymous tip. I got a phone call, and the phone call went something like this. I used to work at the Fiesta Bowl. I was forced to make campaign contributions to local and uh, state candidates, and I got reimbursed by the bowl. Click. That was the phone call. And I thought, there's no way this could happen. This is like in the movies. So Harris called two sources he knew at the Fiesta Bowl to see if this claim had any merit to it. It was true, his sources told him, and they'd been doing it for a long time. Harris asked his sources to walk him through how it works. He learned the employees would bundle their money together and contribute to whatever candidate their bosses told them to, and then the employees would be reimbursed. And better yet, a source gave Harris a list of all the employees who did it. With that information, Harris pulled the last 10 years of campaign contribution records. There was a pattern emerging. We saw the same exact Fiesta Bowl employees gave to the same exact candidate on the same exact day, including a secretary who gave $1,000 to John McCain on the same day that the CEO was given contributions. So we saw the pattern. We went to the Fiesta Bowl and we said, hey, we're, we're, we see all this going on. And they said, oh, that's just a coincidence. This is, we just do it because we, we, we like to be politically involved. 
that, of course, was not true. The coincidence part, that is, there is no denying they wanted to be politically involved. Harris wrote a story on Fiesta Bowl campaign contributions, and it ultimately led to state and federal criminal investigations. The CEO was fired and is now in federal prison in Tucson on fraud charges. The bowl got rid of its lobbyists, as well as other expenses. One thing that they also don't do anymore is they don't go to strip clubs, which we, um, we didn't find that, but because we wrote about the story, they did, later did an internal investigation, they found that they were spending money on strip clubs. Harris expanded his story to all the bulls and pulled their 990s with similar results, overspending and high salaries. And even if you don't have a bowl game in your backyard, Harris recommends looking at different organizations that have to report 990s, including the charity programs of pro sports teams, youth club sports, and the fundraising arms of universities. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on both our SoundCloud page and on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. This week we introduced NICAR courses, our latest training tool designed for college instructors wanting to teach students the basics of data journalism. You can learn more about the course pack by visiting ire.org slash course packs. Want to boost your data journalism skills in 2015? Sign up for our January Computer Assisted Reporting Bootcamp. Check out the events and training section on our website for more details. And we'll be taking a little break to celebrate and to do some episode planning, but the IRE Radio podcast will return in January with more interviews and behind-the-scenes looks at great investigative stories. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and she can be reached at web at ire.org, or you can reach me at George V, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at ire.org. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Barney.